You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Good morning. Um, we, uh, Fred started feeling sick. He's not here today. He started feeling sick yesterday, and there was a little bit of a scramble to get things together for this morning, so we don't have slides, but if you like to follow along, uh, we will be in four are primarily four passages this morning, uh, Genesis chapter 11, Habakkuk chapter 1, and then in Luke uh, chapters 9 and 22. Um, if you are interested in following along in your Bible, I'd, I would encourage you to do that, um, particularly for those Old Testament passages. Genesis 11, Habakkuk 1, Luke 9, Luke 22. Let's pray uh, as we get started this morning. God, we're so grateful for the opportunity to be together And as we come together to consider your word, uh, we pray that you would be present among us. We invite your spirit to be at work um, and to establish your way uh, in us so that we don't just learn with our minds, but so we live into who you're calling us to be as a people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Quite a while ago, I preached a sermon on Babel or Babylon. Um, Those are two ways of really saying the same thing. Babel is just the Hebrew way of saying it. Babylon is the Greek way of saying it. Uh, But again, I preached a sermon in which I talked about Babel or Babylon representing in the scriptures a way that opposes Yahweh's way. Um, In the scriptures, Babylon is a place that's true, but Babylon is also more than a place. Um, It's an important image that stands for something that is far bigger than just the place um, itself. And we see that particularly uh, in the book of Revelation, but in other places as well. Babylon's introduced in Genesis chapter 11, and it remains a theme in the scriptures all the way through Revelation chapter 18, where it ultimately comes uh, to an end. But all throughout the scriptures, it represents a way that is opposed to what God is trying to do in creation and it's also opposed to what God is trying to do in new creation. And when we last talked about it, which I know you don't remember because it's been almost a year since I preached uh, the last time, but when we last talked about it, we said that there are two identifying marks of Babel. One of the characteristics of Babel is that Babel or Babylon is obsessed with human might. Babel trusts in human power. And that trust in human power displays itself in many, many different ways. Uh, it displays itself through the building of defenses. Um, The original inhabitants of Babel built a tower, um, which in that culture, in the ancient uh, East, was a way of building a defense. Um, The way of Babel also trusts in armies and weapons for its protection. Uh, Babel or Babylon or the way of nations is frequently described in the scriptures uh, as a way that trusts in horses and chariots and swords and warriors. You might remember one of the Psalms, Dave said, some trust in horses and chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that's the contrast that's being drawn in the scriptures between the way of God and the way of what we would call the the way of Babel or the way of nations or the way of Babylon. It can manifest itself in many, many different ways. Sometimes it trusts in political alliances. Sometimes it trusts in wealth. But Babel's first prominent characteristic is that it trusts in human might in contrast to the holy nation that trusts, as David says, in the name of the Lord our God. But beyond its trust in human might, Babel's second prominent characteristic is its pursuit of a great name. 
when the inhabitants of Babel are originally introduced to us in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, they're trying to make a name for themselves. They want recognition. They want glory. They want honor. They want fame. They want preeminence. They want to be recognized as exceptional among the peoples of the earth. But in seeking a great name for themselves, the suggestion of Genesis chapter 11 is that they set themselves up against Yahweh and they set themselves up against the exaltation or the glorification of Yahweh's name. And so this morning, having, having that as our backdrop, the trust in human might, the, the searching or uh, building of a great name, I want us to revisit a discussion of Babel or Babylon this morning. And as we do that, I want us to look a little bit deeper at what's really going on with people who buy into this way that sets, sets itself up against the way of Yahweh. This morning, I'd like us to really look at the motivation behind Babel's trust in human might and the motivation behind Babel's making of a great name. We're going to do that by beginning in Genesis chapter 11. We're going to read the first nine verses there if you want to follow along. Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1. At one time, it says, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary, and people migrated from the east. They found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And again, we'll come back to that idea of scattered in a minute. I just want you to pay attention that that's mentioned here, this, this scattering. There's a fear, there's a paranoia of being scattered in Babel. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So Babel is pursuing one thing, and God is doing something else uh, to them for a reason. And they stopped building the city, it says. Verse 9, therefore its name is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And so again, the people of Babel come together in the land of Shinar. They're led by a guy named Nimrod, uh, according to Genesis chapter 10. But they want to build a city and a tower for themselves. These are, as I said, ancient symbols of defense. Uh, if they were building a city, they were also building walls, which in the scriptures are, are frequently referred to as, as the defenses of a city. Uh, but but these, were, these were things that symbolized defense, symbolized their, their trust, uh, and symbolized human might in the ancient world. And as we said earlier, they were also concerned for making a great name for themselves. But what I really want us to notice is what chapter 4 says about the motivation that they were pursuing in all of this. And in ver Sorry, verse 4, not chapter 4. In verse 4 it says, And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the earth. So what we come to understand from this text is that the reason for the people's trust in defenses and the pursuit of a great name was ultimately self-preservation. The scriptures tell us that they wanted to keep themselves from being scattered over the face of the earth, but it's worth noting that being scattered was an ancient way of describing defeat. Very frequently, 
when God is speaking uh, through the prophets, for example, he will talk about scattering Israel or scattering one of the nations. It's a, it's a symbol of their defeat. As he was giving his law in Leviticus, he promises to provide for Israel if they'll follow him and faithfully observe his commands to be a holy nation. But God also there in Leviticus gives his people a warning concerning what will happen if they choose not to obey him. And in verses 33 and 34 of Leviticus chapter 26, he says in reference to what will happen to them if they choose disobedience, I will scatter you among the nations and I will draw a sword to chase after you so your land will become desolate and your cities will become ruins. Um, and we could look at many different passages that I guess, illustrate that same idea. But what I really want us to uh, see here is that being scattered is simply a symbol of defeat and oftentimes God's discipline for living in a way that opposes his way. Uh, and so he's trying to teach the holy nation here in Leviticus chapter 26 uh, that to be the holy nation is not to live into the way uh, of nations. And he essentially says, if, you'll, if, you'll, if you're disobedient, I will allow you to face the consequences that no nation wants to face. If, if you live into the way of nations and buy into their trust, you're going to actually receive the things that you're trying to avoid, which is a scattering or a defeat. That's going to be um, the principle that plays out in the life of my holy people if you're disobedient. But getting back to Genesis chapter 11, this is what uh, Babel was driven by. Their motivation for trust in human might and pursuing a great name was an obsession with self-preservation. They didn't want to be scattered. They didn't want to be defeated. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem all that sinister, does it? But what's produced by this initial desire to preserve themselves ultimately becomes a driving force behind all manner of evil. There are numerous passages that we could look at throughout the prophets that allude to the destruction produced when self-preservation drives a people or when self-preservation drives a kingdom. If, if you're out to preserve yourself, you can do a lot of damage to other people. But one passage that I think uh, summarizes this way, maybe better than any other passage, is the first chapter of Habakkuk 1. If you've been in our uh, Tuesday evening studies, Breaking Babel, you're familiar by now with Habakkuk chapter 1. Ha Habakkuk, like uh, many of the prophets was sent to warn the people of Judah of their pursuit of the way of nations. Uh, Yahweh had called Judah, he had originally called Israel, but Israel by this time has sort of been done away with because Assyria has come and scattered them, taking them captive. And so Yahweh calls Judah to be a holy nation, but Judah wanted to live like other nations. Uh, that was a decision that all of Israel had made back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when they requested a human king to uh, lead them rather than having Yahweh to be their king. Uh, they began to trust in human might just like Babel did. They, they lost their holiness. I think 1 Samuel chapter 8 is a key uh, turning point in Israel's history. And so the, uh, the prophets were sent to warn them of the consequences of investing in the way of nations or investing their trust in the trust of the way of nations rather than being a holy nation. Habakkuk is announcing the suffering that God's people are going to face because of their trust in Babel's way. But as he does that, there's a little bit of, bit of irony here. He actually gives maybe the best description of Babel in all of the scriptures. And his point is, if you follow in Babel's way, you're going to be destroyed by Babel itself. Listen to what is said here. You may notice that the word Babel or Babylon does not occur in this context, uh, but there is the mention of the Chaldeans. Um, Chaldeans, that's just another word for Babylonians. 
Uh, I mean, I don't know why, but the scriptures like to give a lot of different names for the same place sometimes. Um, so Chaldeans or Babylonians, Chaldea and the land of Babylon were the same. Here's what the Lord says through Habakkuk about the end result of the way of Babylon. Here's what happens when self-preservation becomes our primary concern. Look at how Babylon acts. Verse, verse 5 of, of uh, Habakkuk chapter 1. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. And so the implication here is that God is actually raising up the nation of Babylon against his holy nation because his holy nation was no longer being holy. The holy nation had been enticed by Babylon's way. They'd been enticed by the way of nations. They were trusting in human right rather than trusting in Yahweh himself. They were seeking a great name for themselves rather than exalting God's name. And so Yahweh uses Babylon to discipline them. He uses Babylon to teach them about the evil that is produced by the end result of Babylon's way. And the very first thing that is said about Babel's way or Babylon's way is that they seize land not their own. Babylon is, Babylonians are conquerors. Those who follow in Babel's way are takers, he says. He goes on to describe Babylon as he continues. Verse 7, the Babylonians, or, or they rather, speaking of the Babylonians, are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. And so Habakkuk points out that uh, Babylonian, the Babylonians make their own rules without regard for Yahweh and without regard for anybody who bears Yahweh's image. They don't care about people. Justice is not determined by the way of Babel, by love of God and love of neighbor, which is the standard that God had set for his holy nation. Instead, according to Babylon's way, there's the suggestion that just, justice is determined by whatever it is that leads to the self-preservation of those who are in power at that particular time. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Again, uh, we mentioned in looking at uh, Babel's origin in Genesis chapter 11 that because of this people's desire for self-preservation, uh, they have the best defenses. Uh, they have the best weapons. When horses are mentioned in the scriptures, most often they're, they're uh, used to wage war. Uh, and I think that's significant. I'll say this within our context. I know that oftentimes it's not popular to say this type of thing uh, in America in particular, um, but I think the implication of not only Habakkuk but elsewhere in the scriptures uh, where it talks about what God is ultimately going to do with weapons of war and with battle and those types of things, um, I think there's an implication in the scriptures that our trust in weapons, our trust in defenses, our trust in those types of things that symbolize might is driven by the same self-preservation that drove Babel. And so a people's trust in those things ought not to be considered spiritually inconsequential. Uh, those things can lead you astray to trust in a false god. And we'll see here, that's what Babel is accused of in Habakkuk chapter 1. Um, uh, verse 8, their horsemen charge ahead, their horsemen come from distant lands, they fly like an e eagle swooping to devour, all of them come to do violence. Again, if we understand the origins of Babel, we come to understand that this violence is driven by self preservation. When I'm driven by self-preservation, I have to do harm to another person before they do harm to me. 
Verse 9, their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings, and rulers are a joke to them. And then those, again, those who buy into Babel's way think that they're the best. They, they tout their exceptionalism. They're arrogant. They have a superiority complex. Verse 10, they laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. So remember all these things that he's described. They're, they're a sense of uh, self-originating justice. They're trusting horses. They're trusting weapons. They're violence, so forth and so on. And then Habakkuk concludes his description of Babel by saying this. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Um, in looking at this passage, it's interesting to me that according to the way of nations, according to what is common on earth, all of these things that Habakkuk mentions were and still are interpreted as symbols of, tr of strength. Um, the world tends to look at violence. The world tends to look at military might and the execution of self-defined justice as a symbol of strength. Uh, we're autonomous. We can do our own thing. Uh, we look at the false sense of security created by wealth and walls and weapons in very much the same way. We look at arrogance and the proclamation of exceptionalism as a symbol of strength. But isn't it interesting that in introducing Babel, the scriptures make it clear that all of these things that are regarded so often by the nations as symbols of human strength are ha actually have their root in absolute fear of being scattered. They're, they're all about paranoia. Babel's orig originates, rather, Babel originates in the fear of defeat, in the fear of being scattered. And so for that reason, Babel in the scriptures is going to set itself up in a way that is diametrically opposed to the way of Jesus. See, I can't love my neighbor if I'm convinced that I have to defend myself from him. I can't love my neighbor if I'm convinced that in order to get ahead, I have to arrogantly tout my exceptionalism in comparison to him. John says in 1 John that there is no fear in love. Fear, in other words, will never produce the type of life that God is calling me to live as a member of his holy nation. But fear is the absolute driving force behind what is known in the scriptures or identified in the scriptures as Babel or Babylon. And that's why it's in this context that God first begins to call his holy nation. We're called to be a holy nation, and we talk about, you know, um, every Sunday, we talk about that a lot. Sometimes I feel like, man, we say that so much that we even think about what we're saying. But we're called to be a holy nation within the context of the nations, but we're called to be a holy nation more specifically within the context of Babel itself. Yahweh is setting up an intentional contrast with this way that's driven by fear and self-preservation. Abram, or Abraham, who is the father of our faith. We consider Abraham, even as Christians, to be the father of our faith. He's the one who is called out as one who would be obedient to Yahweh and faithful to his way within the immediate context of Babel. We've been looking uh, on Tuesday nights at Genesis 15:7, and it talks about how Abraham is identified in Genesis 15:6. A lot of people know Genesis 15:6. Uh, I can't remember it right now, but... Uh, is he was considered righteous because of his faith, that passage. The very next verse says, uh, I am the Lord, I've called you out of the land of Chaldeans. And so there's contrast there in the story of, of Abraham, both in uh, Genesis chapter 10 and 11, where Babel is introduced. Abraham is then called in Genesis chapter 12. 
But then later on in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where Abraham is identified as a person of faith, right in the background there is this idea that he's being called out of the land of the Chaldeans. All of Scripture, it would seem, then, from Genesis chapter 10 all the way to Revelation chapter 18 is pointing to this contrast between the, self, the, the, the way of self-preservation and Yahweh's alternative way or Yahweh's holy way. Think about how Babel's way contrasts with the way of Jesus. Babel says, let's do everything we can to preserve ourselves, even if it means imprisoning or oppressing or acting violently or killing. That's the image of Habakkuk chapter 1. But think about the way of self-preservation and how it contrasts with the way of Jesus. As Paul is describing the way of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 and encouraging us to actually live into the way of Jesus, he says this, Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or other versions say, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then after speaking of Jesus' humility, Paul then goes on to say, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. And if you pay attention, you can see the contrast, right? <clears throat> Babel was all about making a great name for themselves. And the scriptures say, if, you, if that's the way that you live, you're going to be humbled, right? The, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. In, in Jesus, we learn that those who humble themselves are actually exalted by God. And so Babel is, or God is turning the way of Babel or Babylon on its head. Uh, therefore, God has exalted him to the highest... Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm quoting from the NIV, but I'm trying to read a different version. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in the book of Genesis, Abram or Abraham is introduced against the backdrop of the way of Babel. The way of faith is introduced against the backdrop of the way of Babel. In the context of this biblical image that seeks to preserve itself and make its name great, Abraham is called to leave his country. He doesn't try to avoid being scattered like the people of Babel did. He volunteers to go out of his land on his own. He doesn't seek self-preservation. But as Abram does that, he's told by God, if you'll trust Yahweh's way, if, if, if you won't buy into the way of self-preservation, if you'll live in obedience to my commands, I will make you into a great nation. I will keep you and your people from being scattered. And by the way, Yahweh also says there in Genesis chapter 12 that if you'll follow me, I will make your name great. You won't have to search uh, the, the making of your own great name like Babel does because I'll do that for you. See, there, the images are opposite of one another. There seems to be this intentional contrast between the way of Babel and the way of Abraham. But what Paul suggests in Philippians chapter 2 
is that Jesus really in many ways serves as the fulfillment of Abraham's way. Rather than preserving his life, Jesus empties himself. Rather than living out of fear of being scattered or, or not having a great name, Jesus lays down his life for the purpose of articulating for you and I an alternative way of being in our world, a holy way of being. This is what it means to be the holy nation. And as a result, just as Abraham was promised, Jesus' name is exalted and made great by God. What is first alluded to in the promise of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But this way of self-emptying, this way of resisting self-preservation in favor of self-giving, this is not just something that's, you know, indicated to be the way of Jesus. This is the way Jesus suggests of all that would follow him, of all who would be a part of his kingdom. And so it isn't a coincidence that within this same discussion, Paul will later remind his readers in Philippians chapter 3 as he describes this holy way that their citizenship is not, or sorry, their citizenship is in heaven. They are not, in other words, citizens of Babel or Rome or any other nation, but they are citizens of a holy nation that is ruled by heaven and that consequently <clears throat> is not ruled by the interests of self-preservation, but is ruled by the interests of self-giving, just like their king. We didn't read it, but in Philippians chapter 2, Paul starts the passage by saying, if you get any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he's essentially saying, if there's any appreciation of the, G of the way of Jesus at all in you, then become like him. He talks about uh, arming yourselves or, or having the same attitude as this one who laid down his life. He's saying, step out of the way of self-preservation that ultimately destroys and does violence and injustice because it is... It is fueled by fear and step in to the way of self-giving love. Jesus himself calls everyone who would be his disciple into this way. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus gets into a discussion with his disciples in which he talks about how his kingdom differs from the nations. And Jesus starts the discussion by saying this. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Now, Son of Man, that's, Fred talks about the title, the Son of Man, pretty frequently, but I do just want to uh, brush against it again just to give a brief explanation. Son of Man is a title that originates in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. And Daniel, by the way, is a very specific contrast between these holy Hebrew men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the way that they're choosing to follow, and the way of this wicked and self-centered king who builds statues to himself in order to make a great name, and he's violent and so forth, Nebuchadnezzar. So that's, that's the contrast that's going on within the book of Daniel itself. That's the narrative. <clears throat> this image appears in a dream to Daniel, this image of a son of man appears in a dream to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, where this one, like a son of man, becomes, he's enthroned as the king of kings and the lord of lords. The image of Daniel chapter 7, in that image, the son of man overcomes what are described there as beasts, but then there's an interpretation there, and those beasts are identified of, as rulers of various kingdoms. And so the Son of Man is being exalted over the rest of the kingdoms 
of the world. And so when, when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's at least in part identifying himself as the supreme ruler over all other kingdoms that will ever exist on the face of the earth. This is a royal title in the book of Daniel. But Jesus indicates in his discussions with his disciples in uh, Luke chapter 9 that the Son of Man, the supreme ruler over all creation, is going to suffer and die. See, unlike the kings of the nations and the people of Babel, the Son of Man is going to lay down his life rather than preserving it. But Jesus doesn't end there. He goes on then to describe the nature of his kingdom and the call that he places on everybody who wants to be a part of that kingdom. And I want you to have, uh, pay attention how this contra to how this contrasts with what we've been talking about with respect to Babel. Beginning in verse 23 of Luke chapter 9, he's identified himself as the Son of Man. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must not preserve himself, must deny himself and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, and I think it's important to recognize that the words that he are, is speaking within this context are words of self-denial. He's talking about taking up their cross. He's saying, whoever is ashamed of my self-giving, self-denying way, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And then he says, finally, uh, in verse 27, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about self-denial, and as he does that, he identifies self-denial as a key value of the kingdom of God. We, we talk in our rule of life, um, love one another for God's sake, guard one another's backs, protect one another's kingdom values. One of the values of the kingdom of God is self-denial as opposed to Babel's value of self-preservation. In the holy nation, even the king himself lays down his life. In the holy nation, self-preservation is exchanged for self-denial. We who follow the king who takes up his cross are then called by the king to take up our own cross and follow him. In fact, Jesus says, if your goal in life is self-preservation, if you want to save your life, if you're ashamed of my way of laying down your life, you cannot be a part of what I'm setting out to do in the world. The suggestion is that Babel's way of self-preservation and the holy nation's way of self-denial do not mix. And then again, he closes the conversation by saying, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now, that statement, I think, has caused a lot of confusion because of misinterpretation. A lot of people misinterpret that and say, and think that Jesus was referring to his second coming. And so they're saying, was Jesus saying that his disciple was, disciples were going to live until the second coming? And I think that's confusing the context. Within the context, that's not what Jesus is talking about. In the context, Jesus is saying, look, before you die you're going to see the coming of my holy way that I've been talking about. You're going to see the coming of my holy kingdom and what it looks like. Before you die, you're going to see the suffering and the death of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Before you die, you're going to see that my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. You're going to see that the kingdom of God is established through self-giving. 
He was trying to help them begin to see the world and the role of the holy nation in the world, not from Babel's perspective, but from his own perspective. And so, beginning with Abraham and culminating in Jesus, Yahweh introduces into the world a way that is totally different than the self-preserving way of Babel. It's no wonder, then, why Jesus, as he approaches the Lord's table, approaches it in the way that he does in Luke chapter 22. We're going to close by just examining this passage for a few minutes. Everything about the way that Jesus presents the table in Luke's gospel is intended to contrast these two types of kingdoms, the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the nations, which is represented, according to Revelation 17, by Babylon. Uh, all the nations or all the kings of the nations, as said in Revelation 17, have committed sexual immorality with Babylon. And what that essentially means is that they followed Babel's way. All the nations of the earth follow this way, and there stands in contrast to that, this one holy nation that God is trying to set up. But I want you to, I want you to listen to how Jesus makes the contrast between these two nations as he's approaching the table in Luke 22. Verse 14, it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Self-giving. The table reminds us of self-giving, the self-giving of our king. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In the way of nations, people pour out their blood for the king to protect the king. But in the kingdom of God, the king pours out his blood for the people. Verse 21, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And so as the bread and the cup are being distributed to be eaten, Jesus draws attention to the same idea that he had talked about in Luke chapter 9. The Son of Man, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is going to suffer and die. That's about to happen. This meal is pointing to the fulfillment of what God had been at work to establish ever since Babel, uh, ever since Babel had uh, chosen a different way in Genesis chapter 11. The selection of Abraham and the development of the holy nation, the exodus and the sparing of Israel through the blood of the Lamb, and the Passover, which co commemorated God's deliverance of weak Israel from the nation, uh, from, from the empire of Egypt, all of that is about to see its fulfillment. All that God was introducing through Abraham and the people of Israel is seeing its fulfillment in what's about to happen before the disciples. The kingdom that opposed Babel was about to come. And the observation of this meal was drawing attention to its coming. But the disciples were focused on something else. Look at verse 24. Jesus is trying to teach them about the nature of his kingdom. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be considered 
the greatest. And so Jesus is talking about his own death, the death of the king of kings and the coming of his kingdom, and they're thinking about their own great name. They're distracted by Babel's pursuits. And so Jesus takes an opportunity again to contrast these two kingdoms. Pay attention to what he says. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, that can also be translated as nations, the kings of the nations lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. In other words, earthly kings want names for themselves. They, they try, even when they're good to people, they try to get something from it. They want to be exalted. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the, the one who was most insignificant in ancient culture, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? You know, ordinarily, under ordinary circumstances, honored guests would be seated at a place of uh, recognition and honor at a table. But Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. And then he says, after talking about the differences between these two types of kingdoms, he says in verse 29, I bestow on you a kingdom just as my Father has bestowed on me. See, as the disciples begin to argue about greatness, as their concern turns to self-preservation, Jesus contrasts that with the way of his kingdom. And he essentially says, fellas, that's not what my kingdom's about. What Jesus is suggesting is that this way that we're remembering at the table is the way that the holy nation, not just Jesus, we don't just celebrate the death of our king here. We celebrate an invitation into a different way of being that makes us holy because it contrasts with the rest of the nations. There's no other nation on earth that establishes itself through self-denial. There's no other nation on earth that establishes itself by putting the interests of others before its own interests. And yet when we take the bread and the cup, that's exactly what we're reminding ourselves of. This is what our Lord has done. And this is what our Lord is calling us to do. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.